What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 29 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in AERRR. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. I'd also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to the podcast today. In today's episode, we're speaking to Dr. Judith Hockman. Judy is the creator of the Hockman Method and founder of The Writing Revolution, a non-profit organisation dedicated to training and supporting teachers and school leaders to more effectively help students to learn to write. Judy served as the head of the Winwood School in White Plains, New York, a nationally renowned independent school focused on teaching students with learning disabilities, and is the founder of the Winwood Teacher Training Institute and a former district superintendent in New York. Judy lectures, presents workshops, and gives courses for educational organizations, colleges, and universities, as well as public and independent schools throughout the United States. She's on the advisory board of Everyone Reads, a national advocacy organization for dyslexia and related learning disabilities, and received the New York Branch Award from the International Dyslexia Association. Judy, in partnership with Natalie Wexler, is the author of The Writing Revolution, a guide to advancing thinking through writing in all subjects and grades, the book about which we'll be speaking today. And Judy has also authored numerous other book chapters and articles. I really enjoyed my discussion with Judy, as well as the preparation for it. As a mathematics and physics teacher, I hadn't previously thought as much as I perhaps should have about the role of writing instruction in my classroom, and indeed the role of writing instruction as a gateway to increased student understanding of content, and Judy's work has really opened my eyes. The first segment of this interview with Judy covers in detail some concepts that were new to me prior to reading the book. These concepts include fragments, sentence types, conjunctions, subordinating conjunctions and appositives, and crucially, in each case, how these tools of writing can best be used to help support content delivery and improve writing across multiple grade levels. From there, we address challenging questions such as the role of structured writing instruction in the classroom and its impact on creativity, the role of templates to help students write from the sentence level to that of the multiple paragraph essay, the ultimate way to scaffold student writing summaries, and then on to a discussion of assessments and what quality assessment of writing can look like. Before we jump to this episode, just a reminder about my regular mailing list that collects resources and articles from around the world and delivers them straight to your inbox. The most recent installment includes an incredible collection of maths resources in a free booklet by John Rowe entitled Hook, Line, Sinker, an exploration of what makes a successful department in a school, an article on what makes synthetic phonics different from other approaches to early reading instruction, and much, much more. And finally, a big thank you to those who have signed on as patrons since the last ERRR episode. Your support means so much to me, and it's wonderful to feel that you're getting enough value out of the ERRR to say thank you by donating a few dollars per month to support the show. If any listeners would also like to sign on as patrons to make a monthly contribution, simply follow the links from ollielevel.com or go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to sign on. Thanks for considering supporting the show, listeners. And now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 29 of the ERRR podcast with Dr. Judith Hockman. Okay, well, Dr. Judy Hockman, 
Welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you. Great to be here with you. Fantastic. Thanks, Judy. Well, the first question we always ask is if you're at a party and someone says, hi, Judy, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Well, I say I help teachers deliver more effective writing instruction. Cool. And is there anything about your role that, you know, you, you may give that answer at the party? And then in terms of people's expectations, is there something based upon that answer, is there something in your role that's really quite different from what people expect when you first give that answer? In my role? Mm. I'm not sure what you mean by the question. I okay. mean, I think, well, many people think that they say that's terrific. Children don't learn enough grammar anymore. Or yes, children should learn more creative writing. I'm so glad you're doing that. And actually, I do neither one. So okay. That's what that is that's something that surprises them. Fair enough. Right. Hey, could, could you give us a little bit of a history of your career to date? Well, I was a classroom teacher for many years, mainly in middle school, which would be, uh, well, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, if you're familiar with, you know, our grade levels. And then after that, I became a reading teacher. And then I moved to the dark side and was an administrator. Mm. Uh, both in a, an independent school, which is a, a private school, and then in a public school. And then I became very interested in writing as an administrator. And I've been pursuing this mission ever since. That's great. So the, the book that we are discussing today is your wonderful book that I got so much out of called The Writing Revolution. So could you tell us how you came to the point of writing The Writing Revolution and why you felt like it was a necessary book to write at this time? Well, I was encouraged to write it by several colleagues of mine who felt that the method that we were using to teach writing really should be memorialized in some way. And I had written uh, two books before this since this continued, but they didn't go into the why of the strategies and the why I felt explicit instruction in writing was so important. And it would be very difficult in the United States, and it sounds like it might be difficult elsewhere as well, that if you ask teachers and you ask parents and you ask school administrators where their weak points are as far as the kinds of outcomes that they expect from students, most would include writing mm. in um, their dissatisfaction. And, and I saw it myself in the populations that, you know, I was teaching. And so that was an impetus to begin to really look at writing a book and to try to get an audience of educators who might be interested in implementing this. Okay, now you, you talk about this method you've developed, and it's a very, very comprehensive, well-structured method that moves right from helping students to write sentences and fragments all the way to helping them to write multi-paragraph argumentative essays. Right. I'm wondering how you came up with this. So you said it's when you were an administrator that you got particularly interested in writing. So how do you go from being an administrator to developing a comprehensive writing program? Well, one of the things that you do is you quit your day job okay. and you and you really focus on writing. And at that time, there was nowhere near the amount of research on writing as there was on reading. And 
in the schools that I was working at the time as an administrator and subsequently after, we tried using a lot of these methods in the classrooms that, you know, I was in and in a sense field testing them with very disparate populations. And we saw we were getting results, although at that time we weren't measuring them with, uh, you know, great accuracy. Because then is now the commercial tests that measure writing either have a big emphasis on grammar or sentence length, key units. And that was not what we were doing. We were trying to move students from writing the way they speak to the structures of written English. Okay, so did you have kind of some test populations that you could really work with and hone hone your skills with over time? Did you partner with a school really early on or kind of how did you have access to students to really test your ideas? Well, because one of the schools that I was at, they had a teacher training institute that teachers could, you know, take courses in and word sort of spread about this method. And so there were many invitations to visit schools, but it was me teaching classes and workshops and courses without really measuring the results, Mm. the anecdotal, you know, evidence. And then about, I would say, close to seven years ago, there was an article written in a uh, very well-known national magazine about this method and a very large urban high school's turnaround, which they attributed in part to the students using this method. And at that time... A couple of us decided to form this not-for-profit organization and devote ourselves not just to teacher training, but to getting a better look at how we're measuring the data that we're getting. Right. Okay. Often when we talk about writing, we think it's really, we often think that it's within the remit of just English teachers. When you wrote this book, who did you have in mind as the audience for it? All teachers in all subjects in all grades, because what we've found over a number of years is that when these strategies are applied with reasonable fidelity, it can start in the earliest grades, work right through high school, you know, and in every subject. And something that you touch on many times throughout the book and that you really speak of as the foundation of many of the strategies is the role of background knowledge and also deliberate practice, which is something that I think, to me, sets this approach quite apart from most of the things I've seen on writing and reading instruction in the past. Could you tell listeners a little bit about the role of background knowledge and deliberate practice in learning to write? Okay, so the latter first, as far as deliberate practice, that's teaching in manageable chunks one of the most difficult subjects to learn, skills, I should say, to learn and to teach and do it in a way that has respect for what you're really asking the student to do and an understanding of how difficult it is as a task Mm -hmm. to accomplish. As far as background knowledge, we write about what we know. And that became a very important concept. Children should be writing about what they're learning that their writing should serve the content that they're being taught and not taught as a separate skill where they write about, should we wear school uniforms or how was your summer vacation? Mm. It really should be embedded, and particularly in the elementary years in the United States, 
the curriculum doesn't always lend itself to discrete subjects, but hopefully one day it will. It will. Mm. Okay. So now the book has very much a focus on sentences, and when I opened it up and we, I kind of started reading, I noticed that it started from this idea of fragments of sentences. But also whilst reading the start, I was thinking there's some stuff that comes a little bit before sentence. There's things like the capitalization of the first letter or which words to capitalize, you when to use full stops or what you would call periods, when to use commas and things like that. That's not something that's touched on in a lot of detail in the book. So, you know, at what point do you feel a teacher should say, okay, my students are now ready for the writing revolution strategies? Or what advice would you have for teachers who aren't quite ready to get into the strategies as yet? I think they should be getting them into these strategies very early on. And I think that each of the things you mentioned can be taught concurrently when they're writing the sentences. We start with a capital, we end with a period. If it's a statement and that if it's a statement can wait a little bit, you try to save some of the terminology like noun and verb and subject and predicate until the concept of a complete thought being a sentence is established okay. and it can start in kindergarten with our youngest students and they learn pretty quickly. Okay. And in terms of that, in terms of bringing in that punctuation, things like that, are there any books or works of other people that you say complement the writing revolution really well for a school? Or do you think English teachers and teachers more broadly generally have those punctuation skills to add in themselves to the writing revolution strategies? I think they have that themselves. I think that the mechanics of writing are fairly well known, you know, to teachers. The editing piece is very well known. Okay. It's the yeah, substantive piece that is not as well known. Okay, got it. All right, so as I mentioned before, you started off with this idea of fragments. So what is a fragment of a sentence and why is it important for us to start our writing instruction with fragments? Well, because if you give the students a definition of a sentence, particularly very young students, it's a very abstract concept. I mean, you might say a sequence of words containing a complete thought. Well, they might not know what sequence is, and they might not be able to conceptualize a complete thought. But if you say, flew away, and you say, hmm, that doesn't tell us what flew away, you can elicit from them the bird. Can you say that also? The bird flew away. That tells me what I need to know. That's a complete thought. And that goes right up, you know, where the fragments ultimately become comprehension checks mm. in the upgrades. Okay. So, I mean, what I'm hearing from this is you're actually using examples and non-examples, mm. the non-examples being fragments, to help students identify what is and what is not a sentence. Right, exactly. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. One of the next things you move into in the book after fragments is the idea of unscrambling sentences. So why is it that you see the activity of unscrambling sentences as a helpful stepping stone between fragments and writing full sentences? Some teachers use it as a uh, supplement to teaching vocabulary putting words in their correct order in a sentence, and it could be from, for young children, three words, four words, right up to seven or 12 for the older students, mm -hmm. who for some reason seem to enjoy this a lot. Putting these sentences, uh, putting these words into 
helps to reinforce the notion of a complete thought, and particularly for what we call English language learners, in their correct sequence. Okay. I've got to say, when I was first reading it, I, I was a bit hesitant about this unscrambling sentence idea, and that's partly because I spent a bit of time a few years ago in quite a focused way trying to work out how to speak Mandarin. And one of the activities I did was descrambling sentences. Right. And that's an activity I struggled with, and I felt like the cognitive burden was really high, and I maybe wasn't learning that much. But yesterday it was. I was reflecting upon our discussion that was to come today, and a student in class asked me what the word respectively means. So, for example, they said, they, they'd said they read this sentence that was something like heart rate and coffee cup size numerical and categorical variables respectively. There's a Vietnamese student, he said, what does respectively mean? And I tried to give a few examples. I was actually quite, I was struggling to example. I said, you know, you, you know, you and Khan are male and female respectively. And I use a few examples. He was struggling to get it. Eventually, a Vietnamese student in the class, another one piped up and said, actually, we've got a word for this in Vietnamese, sir, so I can just explain it to him. And then he, she explained it to him. But then I was like, how can I actually check for this student's understanding. And what I said at that time was, can you now, to show me you know what it means, create your own sentence, demonstrating your understanding of the word respectively. And he did it, yeah. but, but but he did struggle with it. And just this morning before our, uh, before our discussion, as I was thinking, I thought, actually, that would have been a perfect example of when unscrambling sentences would be really helpful. Because I could give him all the words, for example, for that coffee cup and heart rate sentence, and then get him to unscramble them so that the respectively, the word respectively is used in a way that makes sense. Am I onto something here? You, you are, because uh, every time I consider dropping this strategy, and I have on a number of occasions, teachers have brought up exactly, and the peer reviewers of the book brought up exactly what you are saying. It's a tremendous aid in not just teaching vocabulary, but in also having students understand a word that they can't necessarily see and touch and have a concrete, you know, sense of. And they have found it very useful. Mm, good stuff. All right. The next thing you talk about, one of the next things you talk about is the four sentence types. And the four sentence right. types, as, as you explain them, are statement, command, question, and exclamation. I hadn't thought about what kind of category sentences fall into before. So why is it that teaching students sentence types is going to help them with their writing? Well, in one way, it helps to what you referred to a few minutes ago and punctuation. In another way, it does inform their reading, bless you, Thanks. when a student is reading aloud or even to themselves and they understand what that sentence is trying to convey, you know, but the most useful way that a teacher uses is the first of three ways that we use for writing topic and concluding sentences in a paragraph. So we teach them to vary their sentence structure in a very fundamental way. And those three sentence types morph into something else that we think are is very important for kids, which is to formulate their own questions and we spend a fair amount of time helping them do so. And through formulating their own questions about um, the topics that they're studying, or even with younger children, a picture that they're looking at, we move on to teaching them some expository terms. Like instead of asking a question with a question mark at the end, they're being asked to explain 
or describe or later on justify. Mm. And so the the question piece of that stands alone as far as what we're trying to convey to students. Okay. And how would you expect a teacher to introduce the four sentence types to students and then what activities would you expect them to use to help them better understanding these four sentence types? They start with statements and questions, and they're very familiar with using both in their own language. Perhaps the thing that they're most familiar with hearing and saying are the commands. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the exclamations. And, you know, we have students turn statements into questions, questions into statements, or we give them a word related to a topic that they're studying. And we ask them to put that word into four sentence types. So it might be immigration. It might be liquid. And not always the four types. Sometimes the four types commands don't lend. or So, you know, three types. But we get them used to understanding what they convey in reading. Because reading and writing, very, very closely linked. Mm. And particularly reading comprehension and writing. And writing, as I said, the topic in concluding sentences using the three, four set type. Okay. So, so if a teacher wanted to write up a worksheet to help students use these four sentence types and they wanted to use the words such as immigration, as you mentioned before, what kind of instructions would be on that sheet or what exactly would be said to students to support them to undertake this activity? So you might say, can you put the word immigrant? into a sentence and they would say many immigrants are arriving in America. And then they might say, can you turn that into a question? You might say, are many immigrants arriving in America? And then we might give them examples out of content about what commands might be. You've got to be careful with commands generally because they the subject is inferred, but it might be Let's welcome immigrants into this country or welcome immigrants into the United States. There's an oral language piece of this that's very important with the sentence types before you really ask them to do it in writing. This is with younger children. Mm. With older students, it becomes a suggesting it in feedback that you give them when they're revising. Okay. And just then you've touched upon something I wanted to ask you a little bit about more. Throughout the book, you emphasize certain things time and time again. One of the things, as was mentioned before, was the importance of background knowledge and deliberate practice. But another thing was various strategies you used or suggested in terms of things like using oral approaches to introduce each of the different strategies along the way. Did you want to talk more about the importance of how to introduce strategies? Well, depending on the strategy, but right through the uppermost grades, you do have students practicing the strategies or demonstrating that they have some knowledge of what you're asking them. And the modeling, your modeling as a teacher of the strategy and giving various examples of activities that support that strategy, it's really very important. And so that's the precursor to actually having them doing activities on the sentence level and then later incorporating it into their own running text. Okay, so so just let's paint a picture. For example, if we were looking at fragments like like we mentioned before, and if you were introducing fragments to younger students, you would start 
in a totally oral fashion as you did before saying flew away, for example, and then you'd say, what can we tell from this? Is this a sentence? Is this, is this a complete idea? And you might do a few examples like that, maybe like three or four or something. Well, yeah, but I, I might not say, is this a complete idea? Is this a sentence to a young child? I might say, does this tell us everything we need to know? Okay. Does it tell us what flew away? Uh-huh. You know, and, and it would be related, hopefully, to something that they read or that they're familiar with. Sure. So it's centered in the context in which you are. You do a, cu- a few oral examples around that. And then do you move on to the teacher actually modeling and doing an example themselves? Well, the next thing is that you want them to be able to distinguish between a sentence and a fragment. Okay. Okay. And as a teacher, you would start off with just giving subjects or just giving predicates. And later you might give them prepositional phrases where they have to supply both a subject and a predicate, such as at the beach. Um, Ollie and Judy were seen at the beach. Okay. Okay. They have to, I mean, there's careful steps to all of these for older students or students with more linguistically rich background. Not every step may be necessary and the pace can speed up. Okay, great. I'm keen now to get onto this strategy about conjunctions that really grabbed my attention and first got me interested in the writing revolution. And in terms of Googling the writing revolution on the internet. This is the strategy that comes up the most. And I first came across it in uh, Ruth Walker's contribution to the Writing in Science Symposium, which Pratesh Rechera organized. Right. And this strategy is because but so. That's right. Could you tell listeners a little bit about because but so? Yes. It occurred to me very early on in experimenting with this method that we ask a lot of students why questions. For example, why is Sydney an important city? Okay. And a student has a fairly wide variety of responses that he or she can give to that. And usually quite brief. It's big. It's exciting. Something. But if you're asking it this way, Sydney is an important city because Sydney is an important city, but so that requires more analytical thinking, doesn't it? Mm. It also requires some background knowledge about Sydney. And so I began to see that just that very simple strategy of giving a very basic conjunction in a sentence stem, okay, would encourage students to give more extended responses, not just in writing, but we've also seen this have a pretty good effect orally as well. It requires them often to go back to the text for evidence in responding for, with these answers and understanding that extended responses are important many times to someone, to an audience. That's great. And really, it makes so much sense because when we are asking students to learn a concept, you know, what does it mean to learn a concept? We want them to make links between the present idea and things that contradict it, things that support it, you know, things that have come before or after. And I really think this because but so is such a powerful approach. So I guess my next question is what makes... Well, because but and so behind, think for a moment where but goes. It goes straight to argument. Mm -hmm. It goes to words like although, even though, Mm -hmm. you know, while, 
and so demonstrate as when if the right starter is given cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So therefore, as a result, and so forth. So the, understanding these little conjunctions conceptually helps students frame what they're writing much more effectively down the line, and that's where they should be going down the line. Mm. So in terms of because, but, so there's one that I'm keen to use in my next physics class. I've been trying to use your strategies, Judy, and, and that is, you know, an ammeter, which is a thing that me- measures current in electric circuits. An ammeter is like a water wheel because an ammeter is like a water wheel, but an ammeter is like a water wheel. So I guess my question is what makes a good because, but, so, and what makes a, a not so good because, but, so? So only you as a physics teacher can really supply the correct anticipated responses to okay. those questions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a because button so means that uh, a good because button so would mean that, well, first of all, you don't always have to use the same stem. It's, it's not always necessary. Okay. That was one of my questions. Interesting. Yes. And you really have to be very careful about formulating in your own mind the anticipated responses of the students, because sometimes there's a convergence between because and so. So you would drop one of them. And I would have no problem with a teacher alternating the stems, depending on what their instructional goal was. In this case, if it says a comprehension check, it might be very important to alternate those stems. But when you're first teaching children this strategy, and it's amazing to us that not all older children really understand how these words should be used, that you give them the same stem as often as possible in the beginning. Yep. Okay. So that they see the difference. Yeah. And I'm also really curious to see how well my students understand the words because button so because they're year 11 and at least half the class probably about 60 percent are language backgrounds other than english and so you know in line with your using oral approaches to start things off my and tell me if this is a good idea or not and hopefully this is helpful to listeners as well my approach is to first start with an example like the student was happy because button so because hopefully they should be able to know why a student would or would not be happy and that will help me know whether they understand those three conjunctions Absolutely. But what you do have to be careful of is when you start embedding it in content, be careful the so doesn't become a modifier like so much. It also should become so that because the so that in most cases is a because, not a so. It's not really telling cause and effect. These are the things. Well, we we can continue. (laughs) Going to expound a bit more on this. That's okay. Feel free to expound. As much as you like. That's what it's all about today. Um, so that's conjunctions. And I, I must also say, I didn't know what these words were before I read your book, so I'm grateful to ex- expand my vocabulary. That's conjunctions. Conjunctions, for listeners, again, are things like because, but, so, and even words like and, and things like that. Subordinating conjunctions. Could you tell us what are subordinating conjunctions and how are they related and how can they help students better understand the content? Okay, so subordinating conjunctions for a teacher's purpose is a subordinating conjunction connects a dependent or subordinate clause to a main clause. Okay, students really don't have to know this, at least initially. Mm -hmm. 
But how we teach this is we give them stems starting with a subordinating conjunction. So although immigrants have contributed a great deal to most countries, how would you finish that sentence? We like to have it at the beginning of a sentence. And there's two reasons for that. First is that dependent clauses at the beginning of sentences and, and embedded in sentences Definitely a written language structure. Mm. You see it more in writing than you hear it in oral language. And the more complex the sentences are that you can encourage students to write, the better they will be able to process these complex sentences when they see them in text. Mm. And that's pretty well validated by the research at that point. So it's a written language structure that has a direct relationship to how it might enhanced reading comprehension, and it's also a comprehension check about what they're learning. Okay, so we've got the conjunction approach with because, but, and so. Is there a similar set of three subordinating conjunctions that you could use in the same way as because, but, so? With very young children, the three that we start with are before, after, and if. Okay. And we hold off on while, unless, and since. Mm. And that's the only order in which we would teach these. So could you go through them again? I'm just going to write them down. Before? After and if. Uh Uh-huh. And we hold off until we're pretty certain that the students are comfortable with the other conjunctions. Mm-hmm. And, and we pick these conjunctions, by the way, that are in the book based on their frequency in the text that the students will encounter. Okay, There's only 10 of them, but they're used with very high frequency. And the ones that we hold off on and we teach them very explicitly are since, while, and unless. Okay. And, you know, I'm sure listeners can hear, as was the case with me whilst reading the book, that it's such a structured approach that's just stepping students through how to write. You know, we're moving from these ideas of conjunctions, because, but, and so, which we use in everyday speech, to much more formal approaches like since, while, and unless. It's it's super powerful, Judy. It's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> the next thing is another word I didn't know before reading your book, and that word is appositives. So what are appositives? <laughs> And how should we help students use them in their writing? So an appositive is a second noun, a phrase, or a clause that describes the noun that it's next to, the preceding noun, phrase, or clause. It can be anywhere in a sentence, but when we teach it, we teach it usually following the subject of the sentence. And appositives are very interesting. You can pick up any newspaper, Article fiction, nonfiction, you see a positives all over, but you rarely hear them in spoken English. And mm. in a positive, plus these dependent clauses raise the level of the maturity of the writing very powerfully. Not only that, a positives give the reader more information about the subject of the sentence. So could you give us an example of a sentence without an appositive and then maybe what it would sound like and what would be added if an appositive were to be added? Sure. So Ollie is 
speaking to Judy in New York City. Ollie, a skills interviewer, is talking, changing to talking to Judy, who's in New York City. Fantastic. I love that. A positive thanks. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. Okay, that's great. And and how do we support our students to use these? Do we just jump straight and say, this isn't a positive, here's a sentence without one, try to add one in? Or, or what kind of approaches do you suggest? No, because it's it's so uncommon in spoken language, our experiences, and remember, our, our target population in training is low-income, high-need groups. Okay. So we, we find that children really aren't ready to start adding the positives until what we call third grade, fourth grade, eight or nine years old, because the tendency before that is to say, Ollie, who is a fine interviewer, you know, et cetera. And so if we really want them to use it correctly, developmentally, you have to wait till, you know, they're ready to use it. And it's unfortunate that we teach too many things to students before they're really developmentally able to handle them. And that's not just a positive. I assume we'll get more to that later. Mm. So when they are ready, uh, how would you, how would you introduce it? Modeling, giving them examples. How would you describe John? What is your favorite subject? My favorite subject Math is third period. You know, you give them opportunities first to say it, then, and there's a very discreet sequence in teaching the positives, matching them, picking them out of word banks, giving the highest level is just giving them a positive and having them build a sentence mm-hmm. around that a positive. It could be a particular person that they're studying or a particular time in history, science. Yeah, sure. What sort of a role do you see for a positives in subjects that are not traditionally thought of as writing subjects, like, for example, mathematics, if there is a role for a positives in mathematics, or, you know, more towards the writing side of, of sciences, high school sciences or something like that? Well, it depends on, you know, and I've seen a positive used very effectively in both math and science. And it really depends on the particular teaching style of the teachers with younger children, having them write their own word problems using a positives at the higher level, describing a noun and renaming a noun or a subject in another way to facilitate a reader's understanding. These are important skills that kids have to have, and they can be of great benefit because you have very domain specific vocabulary and explanations that you give students in both math and science where positives can be extremely helpful. Okay, that makes sense. And maybe, I mean, what you've said there has prompted me to think if they're writing a report to be shared as a presentation or something, and it's going to be viewed by parents or teachers of other subjects, it might be helpful to say, how about we provide a bit more information about this term that you've used, prime number, in the sentence by adding in a positive or something like that? Yes, explaining what it is in, in a more reader-friendly way cool. who might have that in-depth knowledge. Wonderful. So we've just been talking about things like conjunctions, subordinating conjunctions are positives. And I think that leads well into a question that came from Twitter from Erin Harrington. So so Erin asks, to what extent are formal grammar terms necessary or useful 
things like teaching students these conjunctions, supporting a subordinated conjunction and a positive words? Or is it better to limit terms to a few essentials so as to not bog students down? Or are the terms required for fully explicit instruction? So I don't believe in bogging students down with a lot of labels as they're learning these strategies. Uh, they learn the labels as they learn particular things that serve their own writing. So young children know what conjunctions are. They know what a positives are. And they know the terms that inform their own writing. As the years go by, there may be requirements in state and national tests that students have to have certain conceptual knowledge of grammar, and they have to be taught explicitly but they rarely inform composing. And that's been misunderstood for a long period of time until some recent research about teaching grammar in isolation and how ineffective it is in transferring to the improvement of composing. Okay. So as I, for example, as I introduced because but so into my phys- year 11 physics classroom, should I you know, have the title The Conjunction Activity or something like that to get students more and more used to it, or is that a bit of a waste of time? You, you can do that, but adding it into your own language or asking them which conjunction do you feel fits best in this sentence, or here are three conjunctions I'd like you to complete, they pick this up mm. so easily, and it just becomes part of their own repertoire because it's what you know, they're hearing. I was speaking to an English teacher recently about explicit writing strategies, and I wasn't talking about the writing revolution at the time. I was speaking about a great book called The Elements of Eloquence by Mark Forsyth, which you, have you heard of that one? No, but I'm going to read it. Oh, I'll send send you a link to the book. It's a great book. Um, And I actually found it in Daisy Christodoulou's Making Good Progress, which listeners would have heard the interview with her a couple of months ago. But anyway, the elements of eloquence teach really structured things. So they say, you know, what is an antithesis? And they give a few examples of an antithesis and they say you can use this in your writing. And his approach to this and his approach to the writing revolution or his view was, I am worried that teaching in this way is going to produce robotic writers who all write in the same way and it's going to stifle their creativity. Is this something that you've found or what's your answer to a teacher's question like this? So I'm excited to get this question because I feel very strongly about this. Mm. Students don't learn how to write naturally. And what's accepted in a lot of classrooms with happiness is either very lengthy pieces that are disorganized and don't make a lot of sense. I'm speaking about what's expected of younger children, or students entering higher education without any knowledge of how to exercise syntactic control, Mm. which means to revise intelligently to make their writing clearer and more coherent, and without giving them strategies to do this. They will never learn this on their own, Mm. unless a kid with a fairly solid language system It's a a wonderful teacher at some point that's going to give them excellent feedback. And they usually have to wait till college to get that level, often high school. Whereas here, you know, in the United States, there's a big emphasis on helping kids become college and career ready. And we do have some formulas in the writing revolution. And we feel that unless they learn those formulas, 
they will never develop a style or really be able to be creative mm. on their own. We would never ask musicians or athletes or artists not to learn some really basic fundamentals in their work and just, you know, show mastery early on. And it should certainly be the same for writing, which is a very demanding skill for a lot of reasons. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I mean, what you talk about really ties in well to what I was speaking to Daisy Christodoulou about two months ago in the podcast about the generic skills approach to teaching or the deliberate practice. And what you're saying is that we really need to break down skills and provide those foundations. As another example, I went to China a couple of months ago to practice table tennis, right? And the Chinese approach to table tennis is basically to break down the stroke into these tiny components and you practice the tiny component thousands of times for five and hours a day. So good it is. That's right. By the way. <laughs> And I'm not saying that writing should be this exhaustive because uh, starting at the sentence level has some benefits, Ollie. For one thing, the kids are not intimidated by big unwieldy assignments mm -hmm. where they're overcome even before they begin. And also they can see improvement pretty rapidly. So, and the teachers can see improvement pretty rapidly. They have to learn these quote unquote formulas and in our experience, this enhances creativity and this enhances varying styles of writing because they have the security of knowing that they have these various options open to them because you've taught them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you're just broadening the student's toolbox and as their toolbox grows and grows, the combinations they can create with that toolbox is more comprehensive. And also, it ties into something else Daisy was talking about in terms of giving feedback. So if if we've got a student writing, we want them to improve it and say, we could say, add more detail. Or if we've taught them what an positive is, they could say, add an positive in this sentence. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of daisies, as I'm sure you know. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely true. You have to give them feedback that will not only help the writing that's in front of them, but has a chance of transferring to the next assignment. And adding more detail goes nowhere. Fantastic. <laughs> Off to another Twitter question here, and this is from Pratesh Rachara, who, who convened that writing and science symposium and who, in fact, can put us in contact. So very grateful to that from Mr. Rachara. Um, he asks, what advice would Judith share with teachers in subjects like science who might say they do not have the time to teach pupils to write better because there's so much content to cover in the curriculum? Well, what you want to convey to teachers of history or math or science or art, or any topic or subject that you're teaching, is that if they embed whatever they're asking of the students in the curriculum itself, using the particular strategies that we're talking about now, they're not teaching writing specifically. They're teaching it, as I mentioned earlier, in the service of the content mm -hmm. that they're teaching. And your example that you gave earlier with But Because So is a perfect example of that and that could be embedded in any subject they're teaching along with a couple that i assume you're going to be mentioning soon like expansion even fragments anything right well that is a great segue into the idea of expansion so could you tell us because i was i was excited about this especially how it ties into the idea of summarizing so could you tell us first what is the idea of sentence expansion 
So you take the five question words that everybody is very familiar with, who, what, when, where, why, and how, and then you teach children by starting with a very short sentence without any modifiers, such as cells divide, okay, or the colonists fled. And you encourage the students to expand the sentence with very carefully selected, initially, question words, and the teacher controls those question words very tightly because she wants the sentence to make sense. She or he wants the sentence to make sense. But also, she is looking for very specific information that the student either has to find textual evidence for and to give the reader more information. Mm -hmm. Because many times the kernel looks like a student response to something. And we, we're looking for extended responses. We're looking for a reader-centered strategy, giving the reader more information. And so we start at the earliest grades orally. Can you tell me when the bird flew? You know, in the fall. Can you tell me why the bird flew? Because it was getting cold. Can you tell me where the bird flew? South. Mm -hmm. And there you have a sentence. And if you encourage students, and we do this in the earliest grades, to start with when you have a sentence with a structure that, again, is very frequent in written language. Okay, so if I was to put together the kind of different fragments you said there, using the sentence expansion approach would be, in the fall, the bird flew south because it was getting cold or something like that. Right, exactly. Yeah, and it makes so much sense. So. What I was really excited about was how we moved from this idea of expansion to summarizing because I taught a remedial, I should say I was given a remedial literacy class last year and I really right. didn't feel like I had the tools to help students summarize. We had articles where they were asked to write summaries and they would write these things that didn't make any sense and I was like, I don't know what to do to help you. But after reading this book, I thought, oh, I wish I had this class again this year because I've, I've actually now got some tools to explicitly help them to summarize. So can you please share with our listeners how does sentence expansion lend itself well to the idea of summarizing? Well, you know, before you go on to summarizing, and this covers summarizing as well, Ali, sentence expansion is a critical skill. First of all, it's the feedback that we give most frequently to students when they're revising. We're asking them to expand. We're asking them to give a reader more information, okay? And also, and I know you're going to ask me a little bit about this shortly, we have them use note-taking on the answers to the question words. And we want them to learn note-taking for a variety of reasons, which we'll address later. And it segues so well into single-sentence summaries and we teach them three ways of summarizing. One is a single sentence, one is a brief paragraph, and one is a bit more complicated where they're pulling out the main points and some supporting points as well, because summaries, as you know, come in a variety of forms. But we teach the single sentence summary first, which is directly related to sentence expansion. Hi, listeners. Just a quick note. We just got separated from Judy when Skype cut out, so we'll, we're just rejoining the interview now at a time where Judy points a little bit more about the power of expanding on sentences 
prior to us talking about summaries in more detail. Okay. Well, maybe now is a good time before we go into, this will just lead straight into summarizing anyway and answer my question, which I, which I just asked prior to us being cut off for a second. Tell us a little bit more about this idea of note-taking and why I think it's important. Note-taking is, is a critical skill and it's very rarely handled via direct instruction to students. There's an assumption that by the time they get to high school, they should know how to take, you know, decent notes. The first thing about note-taking that's very important is that it's a comprehension aid. Whether you're annotating on the margins of something that you're reading or listening to a lecture, you're extracting the main points of a writer or a speaker. Note-taking will help students in either reading or listening separate essential from non-essential or less essential information. And it also is a great aid in absorbing and retaining information. So note-taking as a skill covers, checks many boxes for someone who really knows how to do it efficiently. And it's amazing how many students don't take notes very efficiently. So when students are asked, and we'll probably get to this, to write outlines for paragraphs and later compositions, the ability to take notes in developing a good outline and a roadmap for themselves for writing, note-taking skills are very important because it prevents the students from writing a draft. It helps them to write an outline, to jot down their thoughts in a very efficient way so that when they actually begin to draft what they're writing, they have a much clearer conceptualization of the organization that they're going to develop. And so we take note-taking pretty seriously. Okay, so when I read the heading of note-taking, my immediate idea was not actually exactly what you meant when you say note-taking. So my understanding was when you say note-taking, you mean helping students to communicate ideas, not in necessarily formal writing, but just in jotting things down using symbols or things like that. So for example, if we were trying to represent the idea, Jack and Jill went up the hill, you might write J ampersand J arrow facing up and then write hill or even draw a little picture of hill. That's very good. Yeah. Very, it's but it's communicating to yourself. Mm. Okay, not to a reader, to yourself. Something that you're going to build on going forward. So when you take notes on the lines on the question word lines for sentence expansion, you're communicating to yourself how that sentence is going to be expanded. When you take notes on the outlines, you're communicating to yourself how you're going to build the draft that you're going to write. Mm. And it's a very it's critical. So when you, when you want to teach this note-taking, how do you do it? Do you, do you provide students with like a massive table of words and associated symbols and say, memorize these? Or do you show them a TED Talk and say, try to write some stuff? And, or, or how do you approach it? So... Again, it depends on the age of the students, but uh, typically with young students, we'll only introduce one symbol at a time. And by the way, those symbols are introduced in a sequence. And one of the most important symbols that we use is a sideways arrow, because that arrow 
stands for results in, mm -hmm. consequently leads to, and this is what we want, extended responses, extended explanations when relevant. And then one symbol, you know, at a time, and ultimately very useful for the kids. And sometimes teachers have more problems with this than kids. But once they become more familiar with it, they see the benefit of it. Okay, so we've talked about expansion. We've talked about note-taking. And something else I liked was you talked about you could even get students use sentence expansion to write the caption for a picture. So just to put yes. those... Two, two ideas together, they might look at a picture, they might jot a few notes about the who, what, why, when, and how of that picture, and then they might kind of expand on that sentence to put it all together. So how does this help students when it comes time to summarizing? Well, first of all, it helps them see the main point. And depending on what the source material is, sometimes the teacher has to identify that if you're showing a famous general crossing a river in a boat, you have to make sure that they know that the river or the boat is not the subject of the summary. Mm. It's the gen. And mm. could you please stand on what you're seeing in this? So you have to be always careful of your source material. And summaries are highly effective as a reading comprehension strategy in general. Students who can summarize what they've read well or what they've heard well, or what they've seen well, have a deeper comprehension than people, who, than students who can. And you want to give those students who can tools to do it. Mm. Okay. So it's really clear how the expansion and the note taking could be combined with the summaries. And I'm, I'm really grateful that you've, you've shared this approach. Okay, the next thing I was really keen to talk about was actually more of a personal question, Judy, about something that I've been doing in my classroom before I came across your book. And I want to get your impression. So, as mentioned before, I've got a lot of students of language backgrounds other than English, and I need to get them to a point where at the end of the year 12 exams, they can do things like, for example, interpret the slope of a linear regression, you know, a line that goes up a graph, right? And this is quite a tricky thing because it combines multiple things. One is being able to understand what a line actually represents, especially on a graph where they don't know what the axes mean totally themselves. Like they could see in an exam the idea of a human development index or something like that, or GDP per capita. And these are concepts that if they haven't studied economics and I've been in Australia for two years, they're not that confident with. And the other thing is, even if they do understand it, communicating that in words. So I've come up with an approach that is essentially a template and that helps my students to interpret any graph, basically, no matter what it looks like. And I wanted your, your thoughts on it. And this might be something that other teachers have, have developed as well. And so hopefully your answer is helpful for them as well. So, for example, if an example sentence created by this template could be something like a one hour, and this is interpreting the slope of a linear regression, a one hour increase in time spent utilizing the writing revolution strategies is associated with a two percentage point increase in standardized test scores, right? So that could be based on a, upon a graph where we've got x-axis is writing revolution strategies used or hours and y-axis is standardized test scores and we've got a whole heap of schools that have been and we've run a regression against their standardized test score results. And the template for that is quite a convoluted thing which probably doesn't make much sense to listen as if I just read it out, but you've got it sitting in front of you. Yes, I do. Yeah, it says a one and then in brackets units of x variable increase 
and then in brackets again, X variable. So we're getting students to pull out the different components of the sentence. What's the X variable? What's the Y variable? What are the units and things like that? I've been a little bit worried and I'll share that template in the show notes for lessons. I've been a little bit worried that this approach in the past, I've been worried that it's a bit stilted and perhaps not helping students develop the conceptual understanding required. But this isn't a worry I have as much anymore and I can talk about that. But I know that it gets results and it helps pretty much every student in my class answer this type of question. So what are your thoughts about highly structured templates like this? I thought it was excellent and I think that it's extremely beneficial. And the only caveat that I would give you is that just looking at the examples that you gave me, there's a pretty fair presumption here of prior knowledge, which I don't have That's right. very honestly, but I'm assuming that the students in your class do. You've been teaching them, so you're asking the questions, you know, I I think it's fine. And I think that whenever you give kids structure and you model sufficiently what it is you're expecting from them, that's extremely beneficial. Okay. It gives you important feedback. That's great. And you're right about the modeling. Like, you know, when I first do this, I write on the board all the components of the sentence. I list them, the X variable, X variable units, Y variable, Y variable units. The first thing we do is write each of those components and then I write out the template and then I rub out the sections of the template and replace those sections with things that we've already decomposed. So you're right, that modeling plays a really important role. As mentioned, I was worried in the past that this kind of stifled their understanding, but After reading your book and after teaching this way with this subject for two years, I actually think it supports their understanding. Yeah, because they see how this sentence structure works in multiple situations and with multiple variables and multiple graphs. And over time, the students who really gain a better understanding, they start to write their own sentence that slightly diverge from this one which shows deeper understanding and the students who require the support for a longer period of time keep on using the structure until they also are more confident. So, so I, yeah, I wanted to thank you for providing me with a bit more confidence that structure well, is okay. Oh, I, I give you validation without hesitation here. And you, you are providing them in effect with a formula with something with a structure that they're going to get used to when they encounter this in a variety of situations, either in a text or in a test. And I see nothing but benefits from this, definitely. Okay, so, so far we have really, I mean, the book's got something like 10 or 11 chapters and we've really only been talking about the first two. We've been focused very much on sentences. Um <laughs> And, and, you know, I've chosen to do that because I think that the sentence level discussion is really what's probably relevant to most teachers. It's particularly relevant to English teachers, but also science, maths. Everyone can use all this these sentence scale approaches. There's also stuff in the first two chapters that we haven't touched on, such as transitions, correcting run-on sentences, developing questions, which is something you said you really value. But I wanted to spend a little bit of time now talking about chapters three through eight, I don't want to go into as much detail as we have with sentences, but I must say for anyone who's teaching English or English as an additional language or something like that, these chapters are absolutely critical in my mind to helping students develop longer form writing. But I just wanted to touch on a few things, maybe maybe three or four different points here to really bring out some of the wisdom of chapters three to eight. So the first thing was 
and where you really start to introduce longer form writing is the importance of planning. So why is planning so important when it comes to longer form writing? Because when you give an assignment to a child and you ask them to write a paragraph or a longer composition, you have to think about the tremendous cognitive load that's required when we write. And it's one of the reasons that there's so much emphasis on sentences. If we can remove part of that from the load that students carry. The load specifically is on something that we call working memory, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. And working memory enables us to process many inputs simultaneously, both from the environment that could be the source material that we're working from or information that we have to get from somewhere and from our long-term memory. And the important thing about working memory is that it's very limited. It can only handle so many things at one time. And this is where developmental considerations, knowledge of the fundamentals of writing all come into play. Many times we're teaching students who are unfair of what you unsure of what you raised early on in the discussion, capitalization, punctuation, spelling. What we we think of some of us as the mechanics of writing, higher level, syntax, word choice, so forth. If these students are still struggling with letter formation, by the way, or still mastering very basic writing skills, they can't handle the higher level of modifying their writing to particular audiences, keeping their purpose in mind. Are they summarizing? Are they justifying? Are they persuading? These are very important skills. So you can take a pretty big burden off of the working memory, first with sentence work and comfort with uh, what a very good writer, Bruce Sadler, called syntactic control, you know, of sentences, but also giving students a roadmap of what they're going to write about when they start writing longer forms. And the roadmap that they use for paragraphs and for longer compositions are outlines. And to us, planning and outlining are pretty much synonymous. And the outline uh, that we prefer is not a web or a bubble or Venn diagrams. It's a linear outline. And all of those forms, those graphic organizers that I just mentioned, have very good purposes, but not for written text, not for ultimately writing paragraphs that are cohesive and longer compositions that are coherent. Okay, so it really is about breaking things down, making them manageable, and reducing the cognitive load on students. And if listeners want to hear more about cognitive load, they can jump back to the Andrew Martin episode of the Education Research Reading Room as well. So you mentioned just then outlines and ideas around outlines. So I wanted to dive into four acronyms that really came out of the book and are really core to this longer form approach. These acronyms are TS, CS, SPO, and MPO. So could you kind of deconstruct these a bit for listeners and help us get an idea of what they are and how they can be used to support and scaffold longer form writing? Okay, so a TS and a CS are very simply 
a topic sentence and a concluding sentence for a standalone paragraph. And at this point in the writing, we want these students to know there are three ways to write topic and concluding sentences. One, as I mentioned earlier, is use a sentence type. One other is used in a positive, in a topic or a concluding sentence. And the third is start your topic or concluding sentence with a dependent clause or subordinating conjunction, depending on the age of the student would be how, and all those terms should be familiar to your students and they, and they do learn them pretty quickly. With the SPO, which stands for single paragraph outline and the MPO, multiple paragraph outline, they are organized, dependent on, to a great extent, note-taking skills. And I should have added that the skills that students have to have to effectively take notes on these outlines and on sentence expansion and summaries, keywords and phrases, the common abbreviations, and the symbols that you and I discussed earlier. And when they can develop an outline, particularly when they're under timed constraints, as they might be in an examination situation, the ability to do this quickly enables them to start composing with a great deal more confidence and end up with something that's far more coherent than if they just sat down and began writing. And we have seen tremendous results the other benefit of the particular outlines that we use is that they don't require high-level categorization and classification skills. They can move down those outlines, as you've seen, and really organize their thoughts and sequence their thoughts, whether it be for an expository piece or an argumentative piece, fairly quickly if they've learned the structures for these. So those are taught explicitly in a very carefully set scaffolded way. And I, you know, they are very clearly set out outlines and you even go down to the level of detail to say that in this outline, when we have solid lines, we're expecting full sentences. And when we have dotted lines, we're not expecting full sentence and we don't want full sentence. We just want kind of dot points or notes jotted down that we can further expand on later. And they first saw this in sentence expansion. And it was reinforced when they wrote summaries. So those dotted lines say keywords, phrases, abbreviations, and symbols. Take notes here. Exactly. And for yeah. me, that was the power of the book and the power of reading it kind of cover to cover because you see the progression and things that perhaps before didn't make sense. Like sentence expansion, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, well, what's, I don't get why this is so helpful. Then you, next you see summaries and you go, oh, it all makes sense. You, you further see note taking, you're like, oh, you know, why would we bother teaching students all these all these plus and minus and arrows and stuff like that? And then you move into the SPOs and things like that, and you go, oh, now I see there's real value here because students aren't getting bogged down trying to write sentences now. They're just mapping out their ideas. So cover to cover this book, you really see that progression of skills. And for me, that's when the whole power of the writing revolution kind of approach came together. Another thing that kind of blew my mind in this section, and I think this is the last thing we'll talk about in terms of longer form writing, was the way that you conceptualized introductions and conclusions to longer form writing pieces. The introductions, you talked about them as GST, which in Australia means general sales attacks, but I assume that you have a, a different <laughs> meaning uh, over your side of the world. 
uh, and in the writing revolution. And and in the conclusion, we actually reverse the GST and we have TS, TSG. So what are GST and TSG? Oh, we saw this again. I'm going to use the word formula. We first saw this in a book called the St. Martin's Handbook, published by St. Martin's Press here in the States. And we thought, this is fantastic because our students have a great deal of trouble writing introductions and conclusions to longer form papers. The details that belong in body paragraphs start creeping up. The reader doesn't always have a clear idea of what's coming or what the importance might have been of what's been written. And if we began to teach students how to distinguish, GST means general statement, specific statement, thesis statement. And we teach them how to distinguish between the three by giving them first a specific statement and a thesis statement. Can you think of something that's very general that they could write? And then once they can distinguish between the three and produce them on their own on an independent topic, they can. And by the way, we teach this as the last step in writing multiple paragraph papers. We want the body paragraphs distinguished first because we find that it informs what the introduction should be much more clear. Let, let me give you an example. Perhaps that will make it better. As a general statement, there is a multitude of serious problems confronting governments today. Okay, one of the most serious is how to handle the huge numbers of refugees and immigrants that, and this has been divisive in many countries. And the thesis, so we had a general statement followed by a specific statement. And the thesis statement is something like that may be the profound effects of global migration need to be addressed both humanely and realistically in order to reach long-term solutions. And within that thesis statement, we teach very explicitly that there should be a plan of development, so forth. And when students have shown some mastery of this, we teach them how to add fourth and fifth sentences to their introduction. It could be a quote, it could be a fact or statistic, but like everything, nothing is assumed. Nothing is assumed. And a student who can write beautifully in one area or one genre may have great difficulty composing an argument or a research paper or writing a well-formed expository piece. So we're trying to teach them strategies that are easily transferable from one to another. Does that make sense? That's great. So that's GST. Uh, moving from the general to the specific to the thesis. What is TSG in a conclusion? So you would take your thesis statement as the first sentence of a conclusion and rephrase it, okay? And again, add another specific statement. And frequently we might suggest a fact, a statistic, a quote, a call for action, and then another general statement. Um. So could you provide a bit of color to that with maybe you gave us the immigration example of GST before. Could you TSG that immigration essay for us? Yeah, I, I think that you could say the migration of countless refugees and immigrants across the globe has to be addressed today if we're to solve the long-term problems that are being created 
you know, buy this. And that might be a very awkward, but rephrasing of the thesis statement where you're, and then you go on to write at the present time, there, there are X number of millions of refugees across Europe, Asia, Australia, suffering a great deal and need great humanitarian solutions to what is a problem for the receiving countries or something such as. And then the general statement might be a call to action. Yeah, and and when I read this, I thought, I've never thought about what an extended piece of writing tries to do in the introduction and conclusion, but this is exactly what it's trying to do. It's trying to take a general idea or concept or problem or issue so to use this, this interview as an example, you know, the big issue is writing, students aren't learning how to write, you know, and that's kind of where we start with questions like, what was the prompt for you to write the writing revolution? Then we move into, down into the specifics of the exact case, for example, what strategies can teachers use to improve writing? And then we move back out to the general. So what implications does this have more broadly? And the last question I always ask in my interviews is any last calls to action, right? So it, it was really interesting to see it broken down and it, and it said to me, wow, if we teach students this, we've ju- we're just giving them the keys to see exactly what makes up kind of these long form writings. So super, super powerful. Next on to assessment, a topic that I'm getting increasingly interested in, and I really appreciated your chapter focus on assessment. So you talked about assessment as having two main goals. The first being identifying next steps for individuals or the whole class, and the second being measuring student progress and helping them to celebrate their growth. So what should assessments in writing look like in order to achieve these two goals? Well, you might assess students' facility with the sentence work or the outline work that you've been doing by with just activities that exemplify what they would need to have mastered in that period. And you do that in a formative way as the year is going on, just to make sure. And by the way, each of these strategies don't need to be taught discreetly. Teachers with a little bit of experience teach several of them concurrently. So, you know, it's it's not a rigid sequence going along. It's only rigid in the sense that the strategies at the end of the line, sentence combining, sentence expansion, while sentence expansion can be taught to very young children, but full-blown sentence expansion activities that are linked to revision, that is part of a prescribed sequence or a sequence that we feel should remain in place. But the way we assess globally is we give assessments three times a year with a prompt or a source material, and we've done both, that is not dependent on background knowledge because some of our students might not have the background knowledge to answer something that's making those assumptions, as we often see in reading tests, for example. And we try to limit the muddying of the waters with students who may have difficulty decoding some of the words in a prompt or in an article. And so we assess that beforehand and make a determination about whether the prompts should be read aloud to students or a separate subgroup of students before doing it. And right now, we're working in between a rather traditional form of acceptance assessment where we use rubrics and checklists as well as a global view of writing. And we give feedback to our partner schools 
based on what we see in these three assessments. And we look at all the trends and our rubrics and we try to make specific suggestions about next steps based on them. But within the past six or seven months, we become very big fans of Daisy's comparative judgment. And we're piloting it in the school and we hope to really move in that direction um, fairly quickly. In fact, Daisy is coming to visit us again in June and uh, look at what we're doing. And in particular, look at how we develop feedback to the schools using this. And we've evidently done very well in correlating with her own assessments. That's great. Just to jump back. So you mentioned two or three kind of global assessments of student writing uh, per year. And I assume these are the ones that you're keen on using comparative judgments for because that's kind of longer form, more broad, wider scope kind of assessment pieces. And then you talked about smaller ones that target or what we could call diagnostic assessments that really target individual strategies to work out the weak points in students' writing to then inform further assessment. But in terms of the more global pieces, what makes a good prompt? So if we've got an English teacher, year nine English teacher here and they say, I want to measure my students' writing at the start, middle and end of the year, I'm going to try the writing revolution this year, I'm really excited about it. What makes a good prompt at the start, middle, and end of the year? Should teachers be using the same prompts? And what should we be careful about when we are designing these kind of writing prompts, as well as how long should the students' writing pieces be? Well, you know, we don't have them write more than a period. And what we do is we give, this is in the more traditional way of assessing. We haven't gone to this point with comparative judgment yet. But in our way of assessing most of our partner schools now, we ask them to write for no more than a period. And some How long is a period? How many minutes? Oh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And some students are finished in 45 seconds yep. or 50 seconds, depending on uh, the time of year when they know we're going to take that unkindly. And then the next day, we hand their sample back to them and we tell them that good writers often have to improve their work or see places where it needs correcting. And they're told on the first day to leave room on their paper, not what it's for, but just to leave margins and maybe skip every other line. And then we want to see how well they can revise their work. Is it mainly mechanics? Do they make substantive revisions? Are they actually, and we've seen this, making it worse? And it gives us an idea of how they're looking at their work and how critically they're able to look at their work and a little bit about what their thinking is at the time. And you see you see trends in revision as well, too. We don't have to go there today, but, you know, it, it's very interesting to see how they revise and edit work. What was the second part of your question? Prompt. What makes a good prompt? Good prompt for a writing sample is something that you're very secure. They have the background knowledge about. So they're either going to get it from the source material itself, which could be a short article. And as I said before, they're either expected to read or it's read to them or something with younger children. For example, telling second graders what to expect in third grade or what was um, the best vacation that they ever had. You have to be careful that you're not going to elicit lists from them, you know, and um, other things that they may be inclined to 
you know, mm. take shortcuts with. I wanted to ask a question now that kind of harks back to, to my experience at school. So when I was at school in year four, I remember I was only allowed to write with a pencil until I got my pen license, right? And I had a, a super traditional teacher in year four. I, at the time, I thought she was about 100 years old, but I'm sure she wasn't. She's probably only 50 or something like that. But when you're 10, they seem older. And I had to learn how to write cursive. And I remember practicing over and over again. And I was always a kind of close enough is good enough. And it's about communicating the ideas, not making it look good kind of a kid. And it was very frustrating to me. To what extent do you think it's important for students to learn to write neatly and or to write with using cursive? Very, very important. And I wish they would start writing cursive in the earliest grades, stay with it. And I think there should be explicit instruction in cursive writing. There are so many reasons for this. And one of the things that's come out and been very impressive recently is that the research comparing notes taken on a laptop and notes taken by hand is dramatic. The retention, absorption, and later comprehension of notes taken by hand is infinitely greater than notes taken on a laptop. This has been done with high school students, college students, and as far as I'm concerned, it should close the book on explicit teaching of handwriting because so many of our students cannot read their own writing, especially when they're under time constraints. So are you still writing cursive, Ollie? Do not, and I sometimes face the issue of struggling to read my writing, so I must admit it, it is important. All right. You fall into both categories. They learn cursive. And then when it's no longer demanded of them in school, they quickly revert back to printing manuscript and they they lose the speed that you can have with cursive as well as the legibility. Very good. And I guess, you know, another another topic to talk about another time is, is touch typing because that's another key skill. So how do we support students to learn to do both at a high level and identify when one is appropriate over the other and things like that. Really key questions. Absolutely, they are. Oh, I, and I could add to that, I've got a couple of young cousins at the moment and they're probably 12 and, 12 and 14 and their school isn't teaching them to touch type. But last Christmas we had them over for dinner and I told them each that if they could learn to type at 45 words per minute by the end of next year, um, I'd give them 100 bucks each and I gave them some software to do that. So I don't know if listeners have young people in their lives whose schools aren't teaching them to touch type, you, perhaps you'd like to give your these, these young people a challenge like that as well. Do something similar with cursive right. if you want it as well. Very good idea. Touch typing, handwriting, very important skills. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about was progression. So in the final chapter of the book and on, also on the website, you have a lot of resources about progressions of writing or writing skills and you kind of map out the writing revolution curriculum over the years. I'm wondering... How did you come up with this progression and, and do you feel you've really nutted it out pretty 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 well or is it really kind of a fluid thing and you're a bit unsure whether you should even put a progression in there or not because people might take it too concretely or where are you at with that? Very concerned that people might take it too concretely. A very big thing to remember with the progression that's outlined in the book is yes, that's the general progression that I think teachers should follow. But there are so many variables that would affect your pacing, the introducing of the very, you know, 
teachers have to use their own judgment. What is the skill level, the linguistic levels of the students sitting in front of you in the class? Should you speed up? Should you slow down? It certainly should be recursive. You don't study one strategy, check it, and never revisit it again. I think we make this fairly clear that as you move along with the strategies, you should try to keep embedding them as you go along in one form or another, either in quizzes or homework assignments or what we call here exit slips, stop and jot, you know, is another term that we use. They should be embedded, always bringing in what the children have learned because, you know, it reinforces what you want to eventually full mastery. But the pace that you move through them is very much dependent on teacher judgment. And it's there that those little diagnostic tests can come in handy. And they're quite effective in using them. Mm. And really what you're talking about is formative assessment, making sure that as you move forwards, you're constantly recursively identifying where the students are at and, and, and ameliorating any misconceptions, supporting their learning and things like that. Relatedly, how quickly do you think someone can learn to write? For example, I've got quite a few really bright students who have come from other countries and haven't spoken much English before, but I can tell they're super smart, but they just don't have the tools at the moment to write really well. But reading your book and thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, you could even get some of these students within a year to go from barely being able to write sentences to write essays. Am I right or am I being too hopeful or what kind of amazing progress have you seen using the writing revolution strategies? The most amazing progress that we see is when you don't try to go too quickly. And we see that outcomes can be really very, very compromised by moving students along too fast and thinking that you're on solid ground when you're really not. And being a little bit too eager to have rigorous assignments when the students might not have the foundation to really complete these assignments well. So I would eliminate the word quickly. I think you can have competent writers, you know, very competent writers, but we say go slow to go fast. You know, one of the frustrating things is that people will have some knowledge of the method that we use and say it's, it's just not rigorous for students, my students or students in high school. They're so wrong. There's, there's nothing very simple about this, either in the teaching of it or the learning of this. But done right, you're giving the students the gift of not just written language, but analytical thinking and the syntax and the semantics of the language and reading comprehension. This is not only about writing. So all of that has to be taken into consideration as you move through the various strategies. And you can use a worksheet here or a worksheet there and have some positive results. But when you you pointed out earlier that when you move through this sequentially, you really get terrific outcomes. And for the average student, whatever that may be, I would say that if that a two years moving through this is pretty acceptable. And you know what most writers would tell you? that they're never finished revising and drafting and improving and getting suggestions from an editor and so forth. Great and very wise advice in terms of eliminating the word quickly and speed as a focus and taking time. And I have to also admit that 
coming to this as a not a subject specialist, I'm very subject to the Dunning-Kruger effect and the expectation okay. that after reading one fantastic book, I, I have an idea of how quickly students can learn to, to read. And obviously, I am highly misguided in my, my feeling of a sense of competence after reading your book. But uh, nonetheless, it's been very helpful and very encouraging. Wow. A question now on whole school approaches. So in terms of when you work with schools, how do you yeah. hope that a whole school will embed the writing revolution? Is it something that you expect all teachers in all classes to do across all year levels, you know, in all lessons or once a week or, you know, here here and there? What advice do you have for schools in, in doing a whole school approach to this? Well, we're realistic in, in that we know that, you know, not all schools are going to have a whole school approach and some schools are going to try to embed this within another program that they've been using, which is mixed messages, to say the very least. I think the, the, the benefits of a whole school approach is that the outcomes are going to be much more powerful because it's a single message that the students are hearing with a common language about what they're doing. Everybody knows what an appositive means. Everybody knows that when they're revising, if you're told to expand, to look quickly up at the chart with the five question words and figure out which one you probably should expand with. Everybody knows the same strategies for writing topic and including sentences, introductions and conclusions. And an answer to, I think, one of the Twitter questions, no, kids don't get bored. Because the way this is presented in every subject area is hardly, you know, um, the same given the content. And to always remember, it's the content that drives the rigor, not the writing strategies themselves. The harder the content, the more challenging the writing assignments will be. But given the foundation that you're giving the students, the more competently they will be able to answer questions are complete long-term assignments, long-form assignments. Yeah, and I mean, you addressed Tim Sproul's Twitter question a bit there, which yeah. was, which was, I, I'd love to know what Judith's opinion is on students burned out of these techniques if they're being used in a whole school approach. For example, they're doing because but so every week in right. every subject or something. like. Have, have you seen teach schools go a little bit far or something like that? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you can see some eye roll. Oh, we did this in English. But you didn't do it about the industrial revolution in mm. English mm. or, you, didn't do, you know, and, and what you see in, in a quite dramatic way, which we would love to have studied much more closely, is how this becomes embedded in their oral language. And frequently you see this in their written language happening with very little prompting and eventually no prompting. Mm. It becomes part of the repertoire of their own written language. And that's the point that you see a writer's unique style or creativity begin to emerge. And it's very exciting. Mm. Two more questions prior, prior to us moving into closing questions. The first is barriers. What barriers have you faced when trying to bring the writing revolution strategies to schools? And what are some barriers schools might be able to expect if they have listened to this podcast, they get excited and they want to have a go at the writing revolution. I think one barrier could be teachers' lack of confidence in their own writing 
and in their ability to teach writing because here, at least in the States, there's very little exposure to evidence-based effective writing, you know, instruction on their way to certification. A teacher can uh, become certified as a teacher knowing very little about writing instruction and through no fault of the teachers. Mm -hmm. It's an empty space in many of our teacher training programs. And so when you're entering something where you yourself don't feel confident, and there again, that's where the sentence level work initially is very, very helpful because they can do this and they see the improvements in their students fairly rapidly. Okay. And so when you do face that and when you deliver professional development, do you generally give teachers books and they will read that cover to cover and then they will go from there? Or do you come in and you, you kind of throughout a year, you deliver four sessions or something where you cover different parts? Or how do you usually help students bridge that gap from a lack of knowledge to, to getting to the point where they do understand? Are you talking about the students or how we train the teachers? Training the teachers. Okay. So there, there is a basic general course that we give that covers, you know, the fundamentals of writing right through compositions. Beyond that, there's a deeper dive into the strategies, era analysis, and so forth. There's specific workshops in argument, actually. There's a two-day workshop on embedding it in math classes. And another course for, for K through two, kindergarten through second grade students, which relies pretty heavily on what we know about oral language. But then there are schools that we have partnerships with. And there are certain criteria that they have to meet for us to form a partnership with them. But we work at a very different level with them. It goes beyond the basic course where we make site visits. We look at the teacher's work products because this isn't a program in a box. This is a method that teachers have to learn to embed in their own work. And once they start doing this, they get over whatever their initial fears may, and not everybody, some teachers are so desperate for this because writing assessments now are taken pretty seriously. And we have, you know, this thing called the common core. But in addition, many states have developed their own writing assessments. And so they want to be able to teach this effectively. And so there's pretty much of a willingness in terms of adoption and with the whole school adoption and with partnerships. We are, it's a great source of data for ourselves and the school because it's in those partnerships that you can see the progress that can be made when it's implemented systematically and making it sustainable within schools is always one of our goals. And the final question is about pushing further. So is there an upper limit to where the writing revolution takes you? And how did students and, you know, people at university and things like that really improve their writing beyond the writing revolution? You know, when you say upper limit, you could go anywhere with, other than fiction writing or what, or poetry or memoirs or, or writing that isn't to inform or explain or to argue a particular point or two. There definitely the upper limits are the highest reaches of academia where you're, you know, expected to do that. But there's no area that we can think of readily in the workplace that you don't have to write. And so 
it's how you define upper reaches. What we're trying to do is to enable students not just to do well as they move on through their education, because many colleges and universities in the United States complain that their students can't write. We hear this all the time. And but we also hear this from elite, very well-known business settings. Boys, even at the highest levels, have difficulty expressing their thoughts either succinctly or clearly or coherently. So what we consider the upper reaches of writing is really able to do those three things effectively and analyze and critically think about what they're writing and to read what they have to read, you know, with an in-depth understanding. Got it. All right, some closing questions, Judy. What advice would you give to your first-year teacher self? Well, (laughs) you know, don't move too quickly. In fact, I thought this was an interesting question. I would pay more attention to cognitive loads, what developmentally students should be expected to do, what rigor really means. And it doesn't mean making tasks more confusing for students, particularly those that involve writing. I think that's the advice I would give. Great advice. Uh, what's your information diet? Whose work do you do you follow? I notice you're on Twitter. Who who are some of the key people you follow on Twitter and get info from? Are there any books, magazines, journals that you'd recommend? Oh, too to many. You know the usual academic journals. You know educational psychology, right? But I follow my co-author, Natalie Wexler. She writes excellent blogs, and she has a terrific book coming out this summer called The Knowledge Gap, which I would recommend to anybody interested in education. I follow someone called Robert Pondicio, whose ideas about writing very closely correlate with my own. I certainly follow everything Daisy tweets about and writes. I think she's brilliant. And particularly her book, Seven Myths About Education, as well as the book about assessment, Daniel Willingham, um, Doug Lameau, Teach Like a Champion. I find many of his ideas. And I like his book, Reading Reconsidered, very much. He's coming out with a new book that should have some interesting information about writing in it. And tips, Emily Hansford, who writes very well about reading. But so much of what she writes about reading could be transferred to writing. Great list. A great list. We'll link to all those Twitter profiles in the show notes. And what's next? Follow you. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Thank you, Judy. Uh, And what's next for Judy Hockman? What are you currently really excited about? I'm excited about working in our state of Louisiana, which is uh, a state that is really approaching educational reform very collaboratively with its teachers. And we're working closely in an area in Louisiana where we're getting tremendous results from the students and learning so much about how to teach students in that particular socioeconomic group. It's been fascinating. That sounds very exciting. And any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away and do? Yeah, I think that When they want to teach writing effectively, they've got to use explicit instruction. They've got to scaffold carefully. They've got to differentiate for varying 
abilities in the class carefully. And we haven't touched on that, but every strategy that we've discussed today is relatively easy to differentiate for different abilities. And in fact, if and when I write another book, I'm going to spend more time on that. And to never teach writing as a separate skill, to be very mindful of embedding it in the service of the knowledge that they're teaching. That's something that I would like to send every one of your listeners away with. Well, Dr. Judy Hockman, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a very wide-ranging discussion, and we went into a lot of detail about sentences, a little bit less about longer-form writing, but just a hint to listeners about the value that's in the book. Assessment, progression, so much stuff. I was inspired at the start about how you talked about the importance or the role that quitting your day job played in you and your journey to come to having the impact that you're having today. And just that final message of ensuring that reading and writing, or writing in particular, is particularly embedded and in service of knowledge and that learning is just incredibly powerful. So thanks so much for your time today and all your recommendations of people to follow on Twitter. And we look forward to your future work. Thanks so much, Ali. It was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Dr. Judith Hockman. As always, you can find show notes with links to all of the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could share it with your friends and colleagues. And as always, if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. And I was grateful to hear from a few different listeners just this week. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, please, please, please drop me a line via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.